Hello and welcome to the latest podcast in our series, Living with Diabetes, brought to you by Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. In this edition, we'll continue our conversation with volunteer Linwood Newman and hear how his diabetes was affected by his treatment for cancer. And on my father's birthday, I was told that uh, I had myeloma. But when he explained it to me, he said it's blood cancer and bone marrow cancer. And I thought, well, at that particular time, I feel no different than I am now talking to you. Linwood is also a mentor for people living with diabetes and DRWF's Lee Calladine, who is living with type 1, explains how valuable this can be from a personal perspective. You know, it's a really scary thing to live with, especially when you're newly diagnosed. People that take on their diabetes on board and manage it really well are great peer support for other people with diabetes. Dr. Parajat Day joins us for our Staying Well feature on hypos and hypers, plus the serious challenges of ketoacidosis. Ketones, they are generally not very good for the body in that the body cannot metabolize. The, the ketone levels uh, go up and it has detrimental effect for the brain, for the general uh, body blood vessels and kidneys. The body tends to get very, very dry, dehydrated, and the patients can go into coma very, very quickly and even die. We take a further look at retinopathy, continuing the focus on eyes with Hannah Biharrell and Jane Clayson from the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Diabetic Eye Screening Programme. HbA1c is the biggest modifiable risk factor for retinopathy. So for every little bit you can get that down and steady, it does pay off in the long run and it reduces the risk of any complications. I'm Claire Levy from DRWF, the host of our monthly podcast, Living with Diabetes. So first up today... We continue our conversation with one of DRWF's champion volunteers, Linwood Newman, who is living with type 2. He was diagnosed just over a year ago with multiple myeloma in blood and bone marrow with proteins and toxins in his red blood cells. He posted this on social media just after getting the news. Hello, everyone. Normally, I'm not great to uh, make a recording, but this is a rather quick one. I am having quite a warfare going on inside of me. This is probably what I would call my first down day. But you get worse before you get better. I have held off for so long and now it's finally happening. It is not a surprise because I've already been told about it. So I'm reassured that finally it's happening. So there is warfare going on inside of me anyway. I'm fighting, carrying on fighting, carrying on smiling. But uh, for those of you that haven't heard my voice for so many years, etc., still me, just a little more mature. 69 in a month. Anyway, um, hope and courage for everybody, and uh, I shall beat this. All right, the best to all of you. Linwood told me more about his cancer treatment, which ranged from chemotherapy to innovative stem cell treatment and how it impacted the management of his diabetes. Here's the relationship. It was a diabetes 
blood test, just a routine diabetes blood test where they noticed some odd things that was going on with my blood cells. I hadn't really paid too much attention to it, but I was getting infections um, because I also go to a urologist and every now and then he's checking on my system. So I would get an infection in some of the areas and then he said something about the white cells. So obviously when I had this next blood test, he decided to forward it. Uh, to my doctor. My doctor then forwarded it to hematology. They told me in May that I would have an appointment coming soon. Well, that appointment was in July. And on my father's birthday, I was told that uh, I had myeloma. But when he explained it to me, he said it's blood cancer and bone marrow cancer. And I thought, well, at that particular time, I feel no different than I am now talking to you. Mm. I thought, well, that's a bit odd because it's something you can't see, mm. but you've been told about. So you have to take their word for it. Yeah. But, you know, when he calls me in, he says, do you know why you're here? And I said, no. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's when he was telling me about it. I took uh, five vials of blood. At that time, they had, it, they had a name called Emgus. More or less, it's a long word, but it basically it just means they can't quite identify what it is. Well, the next day they certainly knew, and that's when they said it was myeloma. You know, while I was going through the um, treatments, uh, chemo. It's hard for me to say chemo when all you're having, let's say, is different medications that you're taking and stomach injections. But that is considered chemo. So I went through five rounds of chemo. And you've had a stem cell um, treatment, <laughs> haven't you? which was very yes. successful. Yes, it was rather quick. They lined it up. December, I had the harvesting of the cells. And in January, those same cells that came out of minus 85 degrees storage temperature were put back in me. And primarily, um, any type of cancer that might occur will probably get killed off by these cells. I call them killer cells because... First off, they have to annihilate all the present living cells in you while they take over. And I probably don't know the complexity of, let's say, the treatment of it and everything. But uh, I must say that since since that and going through the 150 days and everything, I feel a bit stronger now. So it's um, not that it felt any different, but it's just... Maybe it's a psychological thing. You feel like you've been given a good 12 to 15 years of life, let's say. I am almost normal, with one exception. All your childhood inoculations and all that, they've disappeared. I think like a computer, the hard drive has been wiped clean. Ah. So in time, probably sometime next year, I'll then, let's say, be able to go forward and I'll have to decide which one of these I can go with. Yeah. So in the meantime, if I see somebody that has a cold, okay, just keep your distance and everything because you realize those things that might have uh, helped you, they're not there. The best, best observation on my part, let's say, of going through the cancer and uh, the diabetes, stay as healthy as you possibly can. Because if you're hit with another disease or another illness or something like that, I mean, that really doubles down on... Uh, how you are. In my particular case, I thought, okay, the fitness thing, I had to work it in between. 
and uh, was successful in doing so. In the meantime, as far as getting better from, let's say, the um, cancer itself and the diabetes itself, your body, once all the steroids start wearing off, then you find that you're almost coming back to your old self again in some ways. And the stronger you are, the fitter you are, the better that you can take whatever it is. Uh, and I focused on one thing. I said, has there anybody been anybody else that went through getting um, the stem cell situation and breezed through it? They said, oh, yes, we had an army corporal. He was age 33 and uh, he sailed through with no problem. So I focused on that guy every day. And as again, the, the, the one thing I'm really happy to say, one should not be happy about cancer, but I no. have to say this is the thing that uh, I look at. I suffered for a good 33, 35 years of depression with my diabetes. I hid it from a lot of people. You try to push it out of the way and that's it. So people don't really suspect that you have this in that. But once I started balancing my diabetes and going through with this, I had no time for depression. And I can truthfully say it cured me of my depression. And now when I wake up, it's just that simple little thing. You're awake. It's another day. You're alive. And that's how my day starts. Yeah. And yeah, so that's, that's made a big difference. So if anything, I say that good that came out of it it was getting rid of that depression. So your HbA1c, Linwood, what's it looking like? The last time was 53. I'm going up for it again. And obviously, with the cancer treatments, the previous steroids, I'm still trying to balance myself out. So I probably expect it's going to be a little higher. Right. And I'll have to work from there. You found social media quite helpful, I think, didn't you? Yes, yes. Yes. And as a matter of fact, it was purely by accident on um, using Facebook, let's say, of actually talking to people. And I've got, let's say, a little over 400 friends. Well, I was really shocked at people getting back. You were inspiring me, you know, and and this carries on, even though I stopped doing that, you know, I would probably do, I think the longest one was a minute and a half. And I just thought, oh, wait, you don't want to really go into people's time too much. But the feedback I was getting from people was just amazing. I mean, classmates of mine from oh, nearly 45 years later, you know, saying, ah, I now know your voice, etc. You know, so social media has a lot to do in, let's say, getting things going. Now, the prognosis is much better, reflected in his last social media post. Hello, everyone. Well, good news, day 131. I know I have not been in touch with you for a very while, but um, the good news is um, I am in the clear all the way around. Well, I will still be suffering with cancer. That's permanent. However, the stem cells have taken place. I'm a lot stronger. I'm back to doing physical activity, physical fitness and everything. Uh, bloods, bone marrow, everything is checking out. And uh, I'm just saying it's quite a great day. Some of you have noticed the mustache is gone. Well, okay, that was, that was a good gauge during the time and it's made a big difference. So, those of you that make wishes, 
I hope they come true. And uh, I just want to say to everyone, thank you very much for your prayers, your hopes and everything else. And wishing everybody all the best. Limwood is also a mentor for people living with diabetes. And DRWF's Lee Calladine, who is type 1, told me how valuable this can be from a personal perspective. You know, it's a really scary thing to live with, especially when you're newly diagnosed. You might feel completely at a loss. Um, Suddenly you're confronted with this medical condition that you may have for the rest of your life. You've got medications to navigate, to learn about, diet, exercise, and all of the other complications that we're, we're, we're told about that we have to manage. So I think it's really, really important to have mentors, people that have lived with diabetes for years. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we live with it 24-7, 365 days a year. You only get to see a healthcare professional every few months. Um, so you become your your own, I would say your own doctor, really. People that take on their diabetes on board and manage it really well are great uh, peer support for other people with diabetes. So newly diagnosed who are feeling a bit lost and just want someone to say to them, look, it's okay, don't panic, you know, you can do this. And Linwood's great at doing this. He's, he's very positive, very knowledgeable, um, and he puts people at ease straight away. Peer support, I think, is, is invaluable when it comes to managing diabetes. Uh, not only does it make you feel like you're not on your own, it creates a sense of community. And there are some great online groups, uh, community groups, of um, uh, people with diabetes that support each other and they're very active. It's a, it, it, I think because of the nature of diabetes, um, it creates these, these, these community groups and support groups of people that really do get involved with each other and, 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 and support each other. Mentoring is also important for people who've been living with diabetes for a long time because things like diabetes burnout. So I think... You know, it's not always newly, newly diagnosed, is no, it? No, it's not. Yeah, no, it's not at all. Um, yeah, living with diabetes uh, and managing it on a daily basis is quite difficult. You know, trying to balance that with work, home life, travelling, driving, sleeping, you know, all of these things that you have to take into consideration and, and manage around your diabetes can um, put real pressure on people. And yes, there is burnout. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how positive you are and how much you, how well you manage your diabetes. It's going to happen from time to time. I, I've, I've had it, you know, I've had days when I thought, you know what, I've had enough of this. And I've, had a slice of cake <laughs> and a cup of tea and forgot about my diabetes for a couple of hours and then thought, right, back on it, you know, get a grip. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard, you know, it's not, 
It's not easy. And I think that's where peer support comes in. And that's all forms of diabetes, is it? Not just type 1. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, people with type 2 diabetes, even you know, if you're managing it with diet and tablets, you have to think about everything you eat. You have to you know, think about your medication, how things like exercise are going to affect your blood glucose levels. It's, it's very difficult. And especially as it's a long-term condition and you know it's never going to go away, especially if you're you know, type 1 or perhaps someone with type 2 that can't benefit from the, the weight loss program and putting it into remission. Some people have their diabetes and, and they know that they have to live with it and manage it as best as they can. But peer support is vital and really important. And, and that peer support actually can come from other people with diabetes, but even really understanding family members and friends who have got a, an understanding of diabetes as well. And that, that's what happens at the events. You know, partners, friends, carers come to these events and often they're the ones that sit in on the talk, taking the notes, listening, because, you know, at home or outside of the event, they're, they're also caring or looking out for their, their friend or family member. Yeah. So just uh, coming on to peer support and uh, mentoring uh, in a different way, uh, Health Unlocked. So we're the charity that has the diabetes um, support group. How, how do you feel about that sort of online forum? I think the online forums are really great. Again, they have a place. Uh, it, it's just another lifeline for people. Um, not everybody's got access to a local support group. Some people may be living on their own. Some people may, you know, may be shy and not want to go to a group. So something like the online forum it is is a great resource for these people. You know, if you've got a question, you can go on there post your question to the diabetes community um, again most people that will come back with an answer are doing it from their own experience uh, we've got people on there that monitor the page to make sure that there's not you know incorrect information being given out um, the, 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 the type of questions and sharing of experiences that we see on health unlocked is is really helpful um, and, and our admins on the page are all people that live with diabetes as well. And they do a great job monitoring the questions, answering people, signposting them to the DRWF resources like our leaflets and the newsletter and, and, the, and the wellness days. So, yeah, I think the forum is a, it, it's another important tool in, in, in the diabetes toolbox to help people to, to manage their, uh, their condition. DRWF, staying well until a cure is found. You're listening to Living with Diabetes, a monthly podcast from DRWF. Good management of diabetes is key to avoiding hypos and hypers. For this month's staying well feature, 
I've been speaking with Dr Parajat Day, consultant in diabetes and endocrinology at Sandwell and West Birmingham NHS Trust, to get his advice on both recognising and avoiding the serious consequences of extremely low or high blood glucose levels. Hyperglycemia or low blood sugar generally below 4 millimoles per millimoles per litre is traditionally defined as hypoglycemia. And this is not uncommon in patients with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Again, the main reasons for low blood sugar or hypoglycemia is either the patient on insulin may have taken excessive insulin or not eaten enough or there is a food insulin mismatch. Sometimes hypoglycemia can happen on a very hot day if a person has exerted physically and not eaten enough. And sometimes there are certain medications called sulfonylureas, which people sometimes use in type 2 diabetes that can directly cause hypoglycemia. So hypoglycemia is low blood sugar that most people with diabetes would like to avoid because it is not a very pleasant feeling. And the other side of that, what is high blood sugar or hyperglycemia? And again, why do some people experience this? Again, this is not uncommon in both patients with type 1 type 2 diabetes. And high blood sugar relates to a number of factors which will affect uh, a, a patient with diabetes. High blood sugar could be as a result of excessive carbohydrate intake, sweets and sugary stuff, not giving enough insulin to match the amount of carbohydrate that the person may be having during the course of the day, or it may simply reflect poor diabetes control, meaning that the patient will need additional oral tablets or additional doses of insulin. Of course, high blood sugar could also be a reflection of somebody being unwell. And it is not often uh, when patients are unwell with diarrhea, flu, that the blood sugars naturally tend to go high. Just a bit looking in a bit more detail uh, at hypoglycemia, what are the signs and symptoms of a hypo? The signs and symptoms of a hypo is very, very stark and very manifest and you just have to experience one to know what uh, a hypo is. Generally speaking, the symptoms initially of a hypo when the blood sugar goes below four is that patients develop anxiety, sweating, shaking, all symptoms akin to a fear, flight, or a fight response that patients normally would get. If this continues, the second phase would be what we call neurocognitive dysfunction, meaning the brain cells are deprived of blood glucose and the patients tend to become confused with slurred speech. Uh, Their walking or gait becomes wobbly and if this were to continue, patients can become very ill, unwell and unconscious very, very rapidly. So what should someone do uh, if they're experiencing a hypo? How should they treat it? 
first and foremost, it's very important to know what a hypoglycemia is, to be aware not to try and get blood sugars down to 4 millimoles as best as possible, but sometimes it is unavoidable. So education is the most important, both from the point of view of the healthcare professional and the patient, to understand the symptoms of hypos, to preempt a hypo and take necessary precautions. And the precautions are very, very simple. To carry something sweet with oneself all the time, particularly whilst driving or when uh, a patient with diabetes is on his or her own, or working with you know heavy machinery or in dangerous places. So the first thing when a hypoglycemia is about to start is to eat or drink something sugary and the recommended treatment is a small glass of coke, leucosate or fresh orange juice which is equivalent to 15 to 20 grams of carbohydrate. You can carry some jelly babies with you or the dextrose tablets three to four tablets equivalent to 15 to 20 grams of carbohydrate. This should usually work, but it is important to check the blood sugars again within 15 minutes and repeat the treatment. Later on, one needs to find out what exactly is precipitating or causing hypoglycemia. Once this acute hypoglycemia is treated, it is also important to make sure that some long-acting carbohydrate like milk, biscuits, or a sandwich is taken so that the blood sugars stay in the normal range and stay up. Of course, if somebody is prone to repeated hypoglycemia, they should immediately contact the healthcare professional uh, to discuss the treatment and diet. Uh, so when you're uh, liable to experience a hypo, um, depending on your treat your own uh, self-management, what should people do about driving and diabetes? Again, there is uh, specific guidance in, the, in, in all the diabetes websites and from DVLA as well. And it's very important to educate uh, patients who are on hypoglycemic therapies, particularly sulfonylurea and insulin, that driving is a very, very important uh, thing that they need to be very careful about. Uh, they need to know properly reading uh, about driving and diabetes and DVLA will offer uh, some very important tips. It is not rocket science, but generally what people need to do is make sure they check their blood sugars before embarking on any journey, especially if it's a journey over two hours long. They need to keep something with them sweet and uh, treatment for hypoglycemia uh, in, in the glove compartment when they're driving. Frequent rest and checking blood sugars is important and it's very important not to go behind the wheel of a car if somebody is experiencing symptoms of hypo or if the blood sugar indeed is less than four. As and when they experience symptoms of hypoglycemia whilst driving, they should immediately stop the car, switch off the engine, go on to the passenger side and check their blood sugars and 
take appropriate treatment and only start to drive if the blood sugar is above 5 millimoles. And this generally takes a good 45 minutes to an hour. So we're looking at now then at hyperglycemia. Again, what are the signs and symptoms people should be aware of here? Symptoms of hyperglycemia are generally what we call in medical terms osmotic symptoms. Patients will notice that they are thirsty, they have a dry mouth, they are going to the loo very frequently, mostly at night, and they'll also feel very drained and tired and not quite feeling like doing the normal day-to-day activities involved in daily living. What causes high blood sugar? Again, uh, there are many different reasons why somebody's blood sugar could be high. They may not be on appropriate treatment if they are on tablets or they may not be on the right dose of insulin. A lot of high blood sugar relates to diet, uh, particularly carbohydrate-laden diet or lack of activity. And as mentioned before, blood sugars could be high if somebody's stressed, if somebody's unwell for whatever reason. So there are a variety of reasons why somebody's blood sugar could be high. And if you want to just give kind of an overview, I suppose, of how it should be treated. Again, uh, it all depends on the reason for high blood sugar. Uh, and this is very, very individual. So patients may need to go on to insulin treatment if they are on maximum tablet treatment and have high blood sugars. Uh, Patients may need a different type of insulin or more insulin if they are already on insulin and and if the blood sugars are still very high. If somebody is unwell, again, you need to treat the cause with increase in the dose of insulin. So treatment of high blood sugar is very, very individual and depends on the cause. Extremely high blood glucose can lead to a further complication, ketoacidosis. On last month's podcast, we heard what happened when extreme seasickness affected British TV presenter Dom Littlewood's management of his diabetes on a tough Atlantic Ocean leg of the Clipper Round the World Yacht Race. We are five days at sea, about a thousand miles away from New York. Um, we had a very uh, treacherous stretch of water where um, most people got very ill and, um, and started to feel the effects of the Atlantic. Um, my diabetes, I got into a bit of a problem with it and um, I've now got what's called ketones in my blood, which is basically a poison. Parajat explained the dangers of ketoacidosis. The excess blood sugar without insulin uh, converts these uh, the glucose into ketones and ketones uh, can they are generally not very good for the body in that the body cannot metabolize the the ketone levels uh, go up and it has detrimental effect for the brain for the general uh, body blood vessels and kidneys the body tends to get very very dry dehydrated and the patients can go into coma very, very quickly and even die. And this is not uncommonly seen mostly in type 1 diabetes patients where they do not have insulin, where they stop taking their insulin or they are so unwell with vomiting and diarrhea, for example, that they do not eat and do not inject insulin. 
So it's it's a it's it's a it's a medical emergency. They need to come to the hospital because they need intravenous fluids, they need intravenous insulin, and any treatment for any infection that might have precipitated ketoacidosis. Now this cannot be treated at home, and hence uh, knowledge about this condition is very very important both to prevent and to seek medical advice early on so that patients are not left at home without um, hospitalization. How should someone avoid having high blood sugar? Again, it is all about the patient knowing what to do uh, with diabetes and generally what to do living with diabetes in a day-to-day situation. So, they need to make sure that they see a healthcare professional on a regular basis and take appropriate advice. They need to make sure they check their blood sugars, particularly when they are on insulin, and that their HbA1c, which we alluded to, which tells us about how good or bad somebody's control is. So it is important to try and stick to a diet, take regular exercise, and stick to the treatment Uh, and monitoring as prescribed by the healthcare professional and attend uh, either a GP surgery or hospital follow-up as required uh, on, on, on a regular basis. DRWF, staying well until a cure is found. Our next Diabetes Wellness Day is in the north in Hartlepool on the 9th of November. More details on the website at drwf.org.uk. And while you're there, you may like to sign up to our monthly newsletter from just £8 a year, or make a donation. Please include the gift aid if you're eligible. For the more energetic, there are some great activities and events coming up to raise funding for us through sponsorship. Please get in touch for more details, fundraising ideas, or to ask for support on an event in which you're already participating. Call our office on 02392 637 808. That's 02392 637 808. Standard call rates apply. DRWF. Staying well until a cure is found. Eyes can also be affected by diabetes as we discovered last month in conversation with Hannah B. Harrell and Jane Clayson from the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Diabetic Eye Screening Programme. In the second instalment of our discussion, we highlight the value of managing HbA1c levels to reduce the risk of complications. Okay, I'm Hannah B. Harrell. I'm a screener grader and engagement manager at Hampshire and Isle of Wight Diabetic Eye Screening Programme. Hi, I'm Jane Clayson. I'm a screener grader for the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Diabetic Eye Screening Programme. I'm also an elected member of the Bars Council, um, where I assist on the Diabetic Eye Journal. So some tips then for keeping eyes as healthy as possible. What sort of things would you uh, like people to consider? Um, HbA1c is the biggest modifiable risk factor for retinopathy so for every little bit you can get that down and steady it does pay off in the long run and it reduces the risk of any complications Um, regular screening is is a good tip regular tests with the optician are also important because they can pick up things that we can't and you you can still get non-diabetic eye conditions as well so 
remember to see the big picture <laughs> and then it's general cardiovascular health so healthy lifestyle good diet exercise everything that your doctor tells you to do basically it's it's um all straightforward stuff blood pressure is quite important because if you've got weakened blood vessels then you've got blood going through at high pressure it's more likely to cause damage so they do very much tie in together uh, what about people on screens using uh, computer screens is there any advice there just general eye advice just keep your um, glasses prescription up to date um, it won't cause any strain at the back of the eye it won't increase your risk of retinopathy or anything like that but just make sure you've got the right glasses prescription for what you're working at and take regular breaks from the screen as well and yeah. um, we're going to take a break every hour from grading for about 10 minutes to do a different task do you think people know enough about how diabetes can affect their eyes um i think people know enough to be scared of it they know enough to be afraid of going blind and enough to dread the results of their test but i don't think they know enough to feel reassured or empowered that they can do things to reduce the risk and that there are treatments if you need it. Um, I, I think people often don't realise the point that you can get proliferative retinopathy and not have any visual symptoms at all. So you can have perfect 6-6 vision and have a sneaky little new vessel lurking somewhere ready to turn into a big bleed and you wouldn't know a thing about it. So that's what I wish people did know. But I also want people to know that there are treatments for it. So it is definitely worth picking it up early. So can you tell us what happens at the screening and, and is it painful? So you'll have your distance vision tested. Um, we put the dilating eye drops in your eyes, which make your pupils go really big. Um, then you've got to wait for the drops to work about 15 to 20 minutes. Then we can take the photos of your eyes. Um, you just have to look at a little light in the machine um, and there's a bright flash of light. There's nothing touches your eyes at all. There's no puffs of air or anything like that. Is it a little bit painful? The drops can sting a bit, can't they? They can sting a little bit. It's just like when you chop an onion or if you get some soap in your eyes, but it goes really, really quickly after about a minute. So why can't you drive after screening? So the eye drops make um, your pupils go really big, so it's letting more light into your eyes, um, which makes your vision brighter. Um, so it makes your vision quite blurry, um, which isn't safe to drive with blurred vision. So they take um, sort of two to six hours to wear off. So can you explain then how the digital photography examination works? Okay, so when we take photographs, we're looking at the, the, sort of the, the surface of your retina against the inside of your eyeball and that's where all the fine blood vessels are so the photograph is a really good way of showing up the surface of the retina and it shows up all the fine blood vessels and we can look at those images to find features of retinopathy and we're looking for things like um, microaneurysms which look like little red dots where the microvessels have just formed a little pouch because the vessel wall has weakened and that's usually the earliest thing we see that's one of those harmless background features that doesn't need any treatment um, we can sometimes see small hemorrhages which don't need any treatment either we can see signs of fluid leakage that's the maculopathy that jane mentioned earlier mm. that looks like little yellow sort of specks and streaks on the retina um, where blood plasma is sort of leaked and separated out into a solid fraction that you can see and then sometimes we can see unusual blood vessel growth although that's quite rare I don't see it very often when I'm grading. Mm. 
what happens to the images and, and who makes that determination of the results? Now, once we've taken images, in our program, they're graded after the test. Some programs, they do the first grade in the appointment with the patient, but we don't. We prefer to do everything and send the accurate result out at the end. So there can be several steps to it. Everyone who grades images has been approved by the National Dietic Eye Screening Programme. They're qualified experts in finding retinopathy. And what the grader will do is they'll enlarge the image, they'll play around with the colour contrasts and, and make sure they can see what they need to see. And they will grade each feature that they see and mark per feature on the eye and that generates the result so it goes to a first grader if the first grader thinks they've found something it gets checked by a second grader and that's done sort of blind so they don't know each other's answer if they disagree it goes to an arbitration grader and then at the end of that process it go if there's any referral needed it goes to the referral outcome grader and they decide what the clinical outcome of the test is so it can go through up to four steps of grading before you get the final result and that's why it can take a few weeks to actually reach the final answer so how long before people hear anything back obviously it depends it depends. It can be as little as a few days if everything is running very quickly. It can take three to six weeks, depending, again, on, on how the programme is is handling that volume of images. Um, we tend to say within about three weeks, but the standard is that it must be out within six weeks. OK. So if you need a referral, what will happen next? If we refer you, your result letter will tell you what we found. And then we refer into a hospital eye department and the eye hospital gets in touch with you directly and they'll contact you to arrange an appointment. If it's an urgent referral, you'll get seen within six weeks. If it's a routine referral, you get seen within 13 weeks. If we see something that's non-diabetic, but we think needs to be seen, but not urgently, we send that through the GP. And then just finally, um, if, if people are expecting a baby, how does that affect their eye screening? So if you're pregnant, there's a higher risk of onset of retinopathy and there's a higher risk of progression if you've already got it. So say if you've got some background retinopathy, there's a higher risk it could trip over into a proliferative. So it wouldn't be safe to just stick to the annual screening interval. So if you're pregnant, what we do is we screen you in each trimester so three times and then again three months postpartum. Um, and we also use half-strength eye drops for pregnant ladies. They're not known to cause any harm, but they haven't been tested as such in pregnant people. So as a precaution, we use half-strength. And it's also a little bit kind if you're having it done three times in a year. Is that for people living with type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Type 1 and type 2. And also if you're breastfeeding, we'll use half-strength drops as well. Okay. Um, I've seen estimates that the screening programme prevents about a thousand cases of blindness a year. So even though for each programme it's quite small numbers, it adds up nationally. And it's, it's one of those things where the longer you have diabetes, the more time you have to accumulate these problems. So even though in each year we only refer a, hand, you know, a few hundred people out of 110,000, if you've had diabetes for, say, 10, 20, 30 years, your chance of having any problems does tend to go up, but you wouldn't necessarily know from how your vision is doing. So it's important to come to screening, not just once or twice or every now and again, but every year, just so you, you're touching base with us and you know how your eyes are doing and you haven't got a new vessel sneaking up on you waiting to cause a big bleed or a retinal tear. 
because it's 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 treatable relatively easily treatable but if it's not treated there's a really high risk that that proliferative retinopathy can cause sudden loss of sight and that could be in you know a week it could be in five years but it needs treating to prevent it from happening drwf staying well until a cure is found And that brings us to the end of this instalment of the DRWF podcast, Living with Diabetes. Next time, I'll have a special report from our DRWF Wellness Day Midlands, where I'll be talking to diabetes healthcare professionals on a wide range of subjects, as well as to delegates to get their feedback on the day and the topics being covered. Plus, we'll be looking at the role of exercise and an active lifestyle in helping manage diabetes, including interviews on the benefits of interval walking training for better control of type 2. And we've been speaking to Patrick Mertz in the United States about the Diabetes Family Connection 50 in 50 Challenge to climb 50 peaks in 50 days or under. The aim of the Diabetes Family Connection is to build confidence and optimism within people living with diabetes and their families. You know, I thought that this... Using the outdoors as a classroom would be a really awesome way to get uh, people from the type one community involved and outside. And there is uh, an adventurer called Colin O'Brady who set the world record for uh, achieving the, the highest summit in each of the 50 states. But we thought that this could be a challenge that we could replicate uh, and then also involve people uh, that were affected by diabetes. We'll also have insights from the latest DRWF-funded My Diabetes research by Shivani Misra. Modi is a genetic form of diabetes. So when we talk about type 1 and type 2 diabetes, people don't have uh, a mutation or a spelling mistake in their DNA that leads to type 2 or type 1 diabetes. Whereas in Modi, people have a spelling mistake in the coding of their DNA, which means that no matter what they do, they will develop diabetes. This is Claire Levy from Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. Our thanks to all the people who talked to me this month and also to you for listening. I'm looking forward to joining you again in our next edition of Living with Diabetes. Living with Diabetes is a Blue Aurora Media production for DRWF. Copyright 2019. Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. All rights reserved.